Today we're speaking with Tom Matzi, founder, president, and CEO of Clean Choice Energy. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thanks. Happy to be here. Brilliant. I suppose to start, could you tell us a little bit about Clean Choice Energy? Yeah, Clean Choice Energy makes renewable energy easy for consumers. That's what at our core what we do, so that a consumer can support clean energy, sign up for clean energy with the click of a button, uh, making a call, you know, phone call, sending in a piece of mail. Uh, just where we meet the consumer where they are, and then we do the kind of uh, a messy part of the energy uh, industry, you know, to match their consumption with renewable energy. Uh, we we are a licensed provider of energy in the states where we operate and the places we operate. So when a consumer signs up with us, we actually have to provide their utility with the clean energy for their consumption. And I believe you've been around nearly kind of ten years now, or, or just around that amount of time. You know, what drove the initial decision, kind of back, you know, ten years ago, to start Clean Choice Energy? Yeah, I mean, our spark to start story as a company really starts with my own experience as a consumer, and as some of your listeners know, and you, they will now all find out. This is actually my second career. I had a first career in democratic politics. Uh, had a great, very successful run in that world. And um, I was putting solar on my own home uh, in Washington, D.C., I think roughly 2010 or so. And I decided that that experience of having to have a construction project on my home was too difficult. Uh, Even though I loved having solar on my home, I encourage everyone to try to do it. I knew that some people would not be able to do it. They would not be able to do it because they didn't own their home. They were renters. They would not be able to do it because there was some problem with their roof or it was shaded. They would not be, do it, be able to do it because potentially they were uh, you know, limited in their credit to be able to borrow or take a lease um, for solar. And so there are a lot of reasons that people would be excluded from being able to support clean energy on their roof. And from that insight, it, it was how do I make this a service and not a home improvement project? And started looking around for business models, which we're operating two right now, renewable retail electricity, as well as community solar, that both allow consumers to support clean energy uh, when they pay their power bill. And then those kind of first six to 12 months when you're like, okay, this is a problem I want to solve. I've, you know, you're feeling this problem very acutely in a, in a personal way. What were those kind of initial attempts and were there any pivots along the way? Well, I mean, the first thing to think about is like, I didn't know anything about energy. Right. I, I just had the braggadocio to fi- think I could figure it out. And, uh, but what I did know from uh, my time on the kind of internet data technology side of politics is I could probably figure out how to find customers. And that uh, the first thing I had to do then was to find people who could help me figure out the energy side of being an energy company. That, uh, and that meant finding, you know, people who had been worked in the industry for 20, 30, 40 years who could help me figure out everything from credit support to buying energy, you know, having a trading desk that can purchase energy swaps and, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, that, those are real steep learning curves. I think, you know, at this point, you know, our first revenue dollar was April 13. You know, the company was formed in 2011. but there's like a year and a half, two years of just getting set up and licensed and things like that. It's not as easy as like a zero to, you can't go from zero to a hundred as easy in an industry that you have to be licensed uh, to operate in. And 
you know, I, I think the ups and downs are really driven by just the nature of being an energy company. So we had, we've had a couple near-death experiences as a business. As, you know, one of my former execs told me every startup has to ha- avoid dying at least three times before they'll, they'll finally make it. it you know, our, our first part one was probably 2014. There was an event in the Northeast called the Polar Vortex, which... Um, Remember it well. Yeah, now they're kind of regular events. But um, then it became a significant uh, energy market crisis where um, you know prices were unsustainably high, and we had just raised our. This happened in early January. We just raised our Series A on December thirty first, so we we were thinly capitalized, and we had just put our credit facility in place thirty days prior to that. So we just had the balance sheet from the equity and the credit support like thirty days prior, but we missed putting the swaps in place by a couple of days. We didn't have many customers, so the exposure wasn't very big. But you know, you have the, the nature of being an energy company. You you have these sorts of events that happen um, where you're market facing for your customers, and the market can you know be um, unforgiving. Um, the good news is what we decided is the, a great time to go find new customers was when uh, during the Great Migration, when people are moving and changing you know their relationships at that point. Uh, and so we grew tremendously through that. So it was trying to find opportunity in that kind of crisis. And I guess, you know, in that kind of, you know, those squeaky bum times in, in that month, right? When you're trying to like keep the business yeah. alive, like what, I guess like, you know, what was that like process like? How did you kind of power yourself through that? Sure. Well, I mean, the first and most important thing, and I think this is important advice for a founder is you have to be absolutely perfectly honest with your stakeholders and transparent with them because their trust in you is something that is earned in drips and lost in buckets. That if you uh, break the trust with your board or with your investors or stakeholders, you will be very difficult to ever get it back. So we were uh, constantly transparent with our stakeholders during that period, regularly in touch with our board of directors on an almost daily basis. And we had a plan we put together very quickly for how we were going to get through it. And we executed on that plan, um, you know, very quickly. So I think the other thing I'd say is an, an important thing for a startup founder to think about is when you see the iceberg, you act quickly to avoid the iceberg, right? You don't act slow. You don't wait for that. You be until you're closer to the iceberg. You have to act quickly. So I think those are two really important um, lessons that that experience taught me was one, to be impeccably honest with your stakeholders, and second, to act quickly when action was needed. Yeah, on the latter point, I think that there's a kind of phrase that a friend of mine says that like all startup has a speed in, in yeah. some ways, right? Um, because you're going up against these massive forces, massive incumbents, and they're an ability to move fast um, and for good reason, right? There's a lot, you know, when you're a big company that has, or a big organization that has a lot of impact, you don't want to move too fast because the risks are too high. But when a startup, you know, maybe you have a dozen people, maybe a bit more, maybe you have a couple of people's money. These are obviously things we want to respect, but the ability to move fast and try to like avoid issues, but then also see those opportunities is sometimes really the the main thing you have at all. Absolutely. It's one of the things. And I think you're also, um, you know, closer to the customers, 
um, you know, as well at that stage in the business. You know, but those are those are very important, um, you know, factors of like your ability to move fast is is one of your. It's a feature of being a startup for sure. And you mentioned those customers, you know, who are the kind of customers today? Um, what's a typical profile uh, of those? Yeah, I mean, our customers, I think is important to understand because our largest product is actually sold at a premium price to the utility service. And so our customers are really um, environmentalists who are looking to make the biggest impact with their purchasing dollar. They, they are purchasing for impact, not for our community solar product is a savings product, but that that's a different type of customer. Almost every consumer wants a, a savings, right? But um, there's a group of customers who they will do backflips to get the most environmentally impactful um, energy choice um, that they can with their purchasing dollar. And that's our consumer. And it's one of the things that differentiates us in the market is the kind of care and attention, the curation that we do with, for, with our energy procurements to try to maximize the impact for the consumer. And on that kind of procurement side, what are the kind of projects, what are the kind of uh, developments that you kind of try to focus on? Yeah, sure. So uh, the first is technology choices. Um, we're almost exclusively purchasing from wind and solar projects. Uh, you know, you're not going to find biogas. There's probably, you know, there's a role for that stuff, but it's not for our, our customers. Don't want things that burn would be the right way to describe it. We're not going to buy from 80-year-old hydro plants unless there's like nothing else left in the in the region to buy. And uh, the reason being the hydro plant's already built. It doesn't need our purchasing. It's not, a, you know, our purchasing dollar wasn't in the first 15-year forecast or pro forma for that project. And the other thing I would say is uh, we try to put a regional screen on it. So if you're in New York, we're not buying Texas wind Racks for you for your service. We're trying to buy in New York. We're trying to buy, if not New York, Pennsylvania or PJM, and you know keep it as local as possible. And as you kind of look for those, you know, the availability of those electrons that are out there in those different regions, are, are you kind of communicating with the developers? Are you trying to you know encourage? It's like, hey, you know, we actually have a big lack in New York State. Why aren't we getting more development there? We work directly. The first thing I'd say is we are also a project developer. We have a development team that goes and does um, acquisition of land rights from landowners and develops solar projects from uh, dirt up. The second thing I'd say is, yeah, we are constantly in contact, not with project developers, but with asset owners, people who own the power plants after they have their operating to make procurements from them. And it's, I think, you know, the people that do that inside of our business have relationships with, you know, the people who own all of the wind farms and the people who own, you know, most of the solar projects in the regions we operate. That makes sense. And, and in terms of like connecting to those, you know, very environmentally interested uh, customers, you know, you mentioned this past as a, being involved in the Democratic Party. I believe you've been involved in things like Get Out the Vote and, uh, you know, trying to connect to a ton of individuals who have, uh, you know, lots of different views, but are like, kind of joined together on maybe one specific viewpoint. How, how, I guess, how have you brought that to the kind of go-to-market and to the kind of customer development phase uh, for uh, clean choice energy? Yeah, a big part of what we work on is to try to make sure we're speaking to the customers who will be most interested in 
the service or offer that we have for them. And so um, we own large data sets for the whole country, for every consumer that we have, you know, cultivated over many years and built, uh, appended it with other data sets and then built our own models or ML classifications to score con- you know, people on the consumer file there for interest in enrollment, you know, how much electricity they use, what utility territory. And there's like a dozen other things that we model in order to help us run our business in a way that is sustainable and profitable. Because that's part of our mission is to be successful as a business. Also, not not for the purpose of like enrichment, but because we want other people to see that you can be a successful renewable energy company so that other people will follow and pursue similar business models. Yeah, especially, I guess, for people like yourself and even myself, as I look at this space as like potential space for me to develop a company in, as people, energy outsiders, like looking at examples like yourselves where you actually have come in and tried to figure it out, tried to figure out all these kind of complex uh, licensing elements, connect that to a business model, and then also have that impact, a positive impact on the climate. Uh, because there's so many layers to go through, at the moment, it's just there are a lot of barriers for entry for new potential founders, entrepreneurs, people interested in, in joining early companies. And so, yeah, so I think having those kind of examples of people who've kind of done it come from a came in, asked all the dumb questions for a year and yeah. then figured it out from there, I think is very powerful. No, I think it's total, it's absolutely possible for other people to do similar transitions from other industries into energy, climate tech, you know, electric transportation, you know, clean ag, whatever it is, like climate solutions writ large. You know, I think about the kind of areas of uh, renewable energy power plant project development, right? Solar development, wind development, or now storage development. It's not very different than real estate development. It's not very different than people who were building gas pipelines or were doing oil and gas projects uh, in terms of the business skills you need, right? It's the ability to understand how to develop a piece of land and what the regulations are associated with developing a piece of land. Uh, the ability to understand what, what the cash flow will be attached to the piece of infrastructure that then allow helps you go finance that project. Uh, so there are many transferable skills. Or in the areas like data science and technology, uh, there are problems still to be solved that in um, other industries are commonly solved with technology, software, data solutions that the energy industry, for example, has been ossified for decades and has not, you know, had to get consumers to really adopt different behaviors or manage themselves differently, that people who have figured out those solutions in other areas have a lot to offer. What are some of those kind of problems then that there could be this potential cross-pollination of other industries from? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think one thing we have to figure out is how to get consumers to adopt some new behaviors in the areas of electrification and electric transportation, transportation, uh, food and ag, et cetera, over time. And there are, you know, industries who are really good at figuring out how to get consumers to adopt new technologies and really good at helping consumers figure out how to do something new. 
and often they're doing it through rethinking the solution entirely. So like the, you know, the answer we have today for how to do electrification is probably gonna be very different from what someone cooks up in the next 10 years. And, uh, you know, but the problems are kind of knowable, right? We need to, we have different sectors that contribute to emissions, whether it's energy generation, transportation, you know, industry, uh, industry and uh, buildings, heating, right, uh, agriculture. And there are, you know, noble ways to address those problems. And often what we're working towards is figuring out how to get, how to kind of jump the gap towards commercialization of solutions. Right, so that finance is able to, you know, at a very low cost of capital, make it easy for people to adopt these behaviors. Whether it, it means you can get a cheaper loan for a new furnace or a new heat pump, because um, the heat pump can also talk to the grid and turn itself on and off as needed, and so there's a separate additional source of revenue for the uh, heat pump owner. You know, that's like an example, right? There's that's a solution that only an electrification option can can access that sort of revenue source by being available as a resource to the grid operator. And that could potentially make the upgrade cheaper for the consumer. Yeah, there, there's definitely all these kind of competing sources are fighting for attention, right? You know, we've never had more things being thrown in our way. And I think collectively, people working on these big problems need to do some are doing a great job, but collectively we need to do a better job, I think, of describing that like better future. Yes. Right. The that 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 electrified home, better like home. I tell people, it's like if you have kids, it's a better home. Like that induction stove, you're not your kids are not gonna right. burn their, their fingers, right? And there's all these other elements. And I think a lot of people just kind of picture the future as, you know, maybe EVs plus solar panels on the roof, and like that's that's it. But I think there's like this much better potential that's cleaner, fast, like cleaner, quieter, and all these other elements that go in. And I think a lot of the work to be done to kind of bring that next 10 million of consumers, that next 10 millions of, of people like along the journey is like do a better description of that potential future. I agree completely. Marketing the future is what the great product innovators have done for you know hundreds of years, whether it's Thomas Edison or, you know, uh, Steve Jobs, you know, they, they painted a picture in people's head for, you know, what the future could potentially be. And, you know, the, the difference that's, I think, a little challenging with some of our solutions in the climate tech space is that we these solutions aren't really community building or social, right? It's infrastructure, right? right? The, the, the most successful and fastest adopted innovations have had a social or community component to them because people want to a- interact with other people, right? So they adopt a new technology to be able to interact with other people. And, and our stuff doesn't do that. <laughs> so, so that's yeah. the, that's the harder piece is like, you know, it's like trying to get people to adopt a new type of car. Well, the, the new type of car does the same thing. The old car mostly did gets you from point A to point B. Yeah. I love my Tesla cause I never have to go to a gas station again. And until you have that experience though, of never having to go to a gas station again, which I always describe going to a gas station as perhaps the worst customer experience you could ever put into a product. <laughs> then you don't understand how great, you know, having an electric vehicle that's always charged when you leave your home. Um, although I don't think we should be thinking of EVs as the climate solution. They're a way to decarbonize 
vehicle transportation, but we also have to be thinking about transit development in different ways as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, but it is funny about the refueling at the uh, the gas station. It's so ingrained, and it is like a terrible experience. And especially in yeah. the United States, like some states, you're not even allowed to fill your own gas. Like there's all these kind of random things depending on where you are. So like road trips become very interesting, just just even just on that basis. But it, because it's so ingrained, it's, that expectation is there. And it's, again, until people experience their family and friends who've had that new type of experience, it's, it's quite hard to get them to be like, oh, this is just a genuinely better way. Like, I'll, I'll save, you know, 50 hours a year that were just completely wasted at the gas right. station going forward. Yeah, and also safety issues. I mean, you have a non-zero chance of being, like, murdered <laughs> you go to a gas station, right? right? I mean, there's... Plenty of crimes that are committed against people who are pumping their own gas. So I think certainly that's better in that way as well. Um, it's also electric fuel will be a lot cheaper once it's ubiquitous uh, because you don't have the heat waste of an internal combustion, you know, where the energy, the BTUs are lost to heat rather than going into power for propulsion. Absolutely. And, and on that pricing piece, you mentioned, you know, you are looking at, and you work with uh, customers who want to pay those premium prices to kind of drive the change. How do you think about how that will develop over time, right? Because we are trying to build a ton of solar and wind. Sometimes they're not being built in like ideal places, but, you know, some parts of the country will potentially get to a penny a kilowatt hour within the next decade, maybe you know, sooner than that, depending on where you are. I guess, how do you think about that interaction of like energy prices getting very, very low as we kind of build a lot of these projects and how that affects the interaction between the market and the consumer? Yeah, I think we're often probably overstating how cheap it's going to be because the cost of electricity delivered to a node, like a, a unit contingent shape is very different than the cost of energy delivered to a customer at their home. And you have to change the shape to the shape of the customer's usage not just the usage of that the generator is able to generate when it's windy or sunny, and you have pay the various toll booths, for lack of a better term, along, along the way. So I think the, the opportunity is to potentially have cheaper energy, but the other components that go into delivered supply to the customer may, may become you know, more expensive. And I actually think over time, what you see is just a wash. But what it means is that you'll you'll be have a, able to build a new clean system inside of the same cost envelope as the old system, and like that's a very that's an upgrade to the current system because it'll be clean and you know won't be bad for public health or the climate, and uh, you know has all of those additional benefits. Do eventually the hopefully you can get to twenty four seven supply, you know, at a lower cost because you don't have the fuel costs embedded, right? But if there's complexity in bringing the you know electricity to a customer on their shape of usage compared to the generator's shape of of generation. That that makes a ton of sense, and I guess like as I'm thinking through the those customer experiences we talked about for a little bit, if I came on to Clean Choice Energy's website. Like, what is that experience for me as a consumer as I kind of connect to your product and, and start getting value? Yeah, I mean, so hopefully you're in one of the markets that we serve and we serve more than 35, you know, markets today and we'll be a lot, in a year from now, it'll be a lot more than that. 
but uh, there, you know, you can go to an enrollment workflow, you know, go through a couple click pages and you provide your name and you choose your plan, uh, your account number, and then you're enrolled. And you'll start to get communications from us about the timeline for getting on our service based upon our communications with the back office at the utility, you know, and when the utility says that your service may begin. So if you enrolled today, it might be six, eight, 10 weeks actually before the utility begins the service. There are some states where it's kind of accelerated switching, where it might be like a five-day conversion, but in other places, it could be a lot longer. We're communicating with you along the way to let you know you know, when that service uh, cuts over. But an important feature of this product is it's, it's changing the source of the who's buying the energy for the customer at the, you know, to deliver to their utility. And this is, I'm using these as metaphors because it's, it's all done through um, kind of a fungible exchange, the way that money's moved around, different things like that. But, you know, ho- hopefully in the, hopefully in the future, you know, you'll be able to, um, you know, get that service much more quickly just through instantaneous enrollment. That makes sense. And so, and so then, and then ongoing, I see, you know, I have a, I basically, I'm seeing a line of clean energy on my bill and then basically that, that and you know, I have that kind of continued relationship with, you know, clean choice energy and I know I've, I've done my bish. Is that the kind of basic model? Yeah. We send monthly impact reports to our customers where we explain to them the impact of their purchasing dollar how many kilowatt hours of clean energy it represents. We're telling stories about the projects that we buy from. And, you know, we're, we're trying to keep the impact part of this story front and center for the customer. And, you know, another part of being a clean choice customer is, you know, our, uh, who we are as a company by being a, a B Corp, but also a company that advocates for climate solutions, supports legislation that advances climate solutions. We have also, you know, our, our project development team that's developing new solar projects. And the kind of revenue from our customers supports all of these activities of the business. It's not just the purchasing of the commodity to, to, for their supply. So I, I like to think of our customers as also our kind of collaborators on um, our work to advance clean energy. Another kind of group of people you have to, I guess, collaborate with, but work with, you mentioned a couple of times, is the utilities themselves. Sure. Um, what is it like working with those utilities? How does that vary? And, you know, how could that uh, that working relationship potentially improve over the next number of years as uh, pressure comes to bear on, on this kind of space? Yeah, in the markets we operate in, generally, the utilities are uh, regulated in how they're allowed to interact with our company. And they follow the, you know, rules almost to a T. I would say that the kind of challenges are often interacting with the utility are more technology driven where their systems are older compared to, you know, the technology we might be using. And, and that can lead to kind of breakdowns in some of the data communications between the utilities and, and third-party companies. But generally it's just a regulated relationship and uh, they just kind of, you know, because we're licensed, because we have, we're a member of the RTO or ISO where that, that utility is, which is the regional transmission organization. They have to work with us, basically, is how it works. 
I would say that in the community solar part of our business, those systems are much more nascent in the utilities. And they're often being done by hand by one person to do affect the billing or affect the credit allocations uh, for community solar credits. And that's a little that's a little concerning uh, to me. I think that needs to be professionalized by the utilities. There are some utilities who have done have professionalized. I think a couple I would say are very well run in that regard. And there's others who have not at all. And then there's some who haven't been able to invest in the systems yet, but they have operations people who are paying really close attention. And so that the the challenge is that's different in many markets, right? We don't have one set of market rules and uh, for data exchange, we don't have one set of market, uh, you know, um, requirements for the utilities. And so you have to be somewhat expert in all of these different utility data schema and utility yeah. arcania, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I was talking to uh, somebody who works in the back uh, tech office at, at a utility in the West Coast uh, a couple months ago, and uh, they were telling me about how they have just this one developer who wrote some code in literally the early 1990s, and they will always be there because they're the only person who knows how to actually run some of the processes that they have internally. Uh, and C Sharp or something Not even like before that. that. It might be DOS. Like, it's actually incredible, <laughs> yeah. um, some no. things that are going on. Um, and I guess one of the kind of other elements uh, is around uh, kind of regulation and, and the policy piece. And so, you know, we're seeing um, different movements on the state level. We obviously saw some big moves and maybe not, not all the big moves we wanted at the federal level this year. How do you think about the kind of role of regulation? What would you like to see change pro or con over the next couple of years? Well, I mean, our company and ICE personally, we support the moves towards 100% clean energy that uh, some states uh, have been pursuing. And, you know, we think that there's a role for providers in, in those markets as well. Um, yeah, us as a provider, either as a wholesaler by someone who develops projects or for consumers who are looking at that point, then for a different type of plan with maybe time of use pricing or, you know, something that's a little different than the plain vanilla they might get from the utility. So I think that, one, we want to see more states push towards 100% clean energy. The second is from the feds, we need them to keep the tax and corporate kind of structure, you know, innovation going. That is very important to support, you know, new renewable energy projects. And I think they need to extend it to new technologies and new types of, you know, consumer behavior, whether it be storage or extending it to certain home energy efficiency investments or other type of investments like that. But most energy policy, at least climate tech is broad in many areas, but most most energy policy is set in the United States at the state level. And, and you know, we have seen some states really move very quickly, New York obviously being one of them, Illinois being another. But then we have other states that are, um, you know, dragging their feet and aren't moving forward at all. Or we have other states that kind of are start and stop, start and stop. And, you know, we need to see more consistency. I guess that consistency is brought on by, you know, the usual kind of levers of activism, policy, political change, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think one thing I notice is we increasingly every year have legislature legislators in the states who are more and more sophisticated about these policies and how they facilitate 
both climate impact, but as well as well as economic development in their states. And so when you have a, you know, a senator, a state senator or a state legislator who understands this, it's a really big step forward because they are actually more fluent in understanding how government can support and policy can support these, um, you know, virtuous activities we want to see happen than even the industry can be. And, uh, and so that one of the things I think has been exciting to see has been to see over 10 plus years, legislators who now get it and are working to advance clean energy and climate solutions. Yeah, no, the, the picture even just in the last six to nine months has dramatically changed since I've started kind of following it in depth. And it is quite exciting, right? Uh, it's, we are starting to see that flow of, uh, ideas, talent, and kind of money coming into the space. Yeah. And I, you know, I would say um, the, I've been in this space long enough to have seen that once before and then see it also dry up. So <laughs> we have to create, we have to figure out how to make the whole virtuous cycle of capitalization work from seed stage through liquidity so that investors in all of these areas can, can feel comfortable that their money is not going to be wasted, that there is a path to return of any level. I mean, I think it's just like not having it be uh, philanthropic at that point. And, you know, we have had in the last 10 years, a couple of big companies who either went bankrupt or just got stopped operating, their assets got gobbled up by somebody else that have then really, those have been really big setbacks for um, the industry. So I'm thinking about like Sun Edison or there's a company in the Northeast called Next Step Living that was doing home retrofits. It's been very successful until it wasn't. And I think, uh, you know, we, we have to be careful about losing the momentum we have when, when there's a new wave of failures. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's absolutely like a ton of, venture money in particular is like flowing into climate tech kind of generally and um, which is incredibly exciting I, I do say to people though is like you know it is venture so 90 yeah. percent of the things they fund will fail right. like that is that is the model and so you know we have to have that discipline collectively over that time that even th- as things fail um we can maintain it and I, I think it comes back to one of your earlier points that you know there's I think a lot of the technology we need not, not in everything but a lot of technology we need is generally in place or on a path to commercialization it's the business yes. model innovation that I think needs this, you know, a lot of smart people thinking about trying to figure out how do you make these things get to scale very, very rapidly in this social way. And you, and you mentioned like there's a lack of social uh, elements to infrastructure. Um, it's actually funny. I was, I was talking to somebody recently who was actually looking at um, having basically a digital co-op using some of this Web3 technology to try to build some clean or zero carbon apartment buildings in their neighborhood and like that those type of things are just starting to emerge and you know a lot of that is a lot of that stuff is more smoked sure. in, you know smoke and mirrors but it is interesting there is some innovation happening on that side as well yeah no i i've seen that those uh, i've seen examples like that and it just it, it hasn't had the like pop from what I've seen in my prior life in experiencing how cultural moments can really drive an upswelling of kind of action by millions of people. And uh, I think that's okay because um, we also have products and services that people have to buy, 
right? They need electricity. They need transportation. They need food. They don't need Facebook or Twitter, right? (laughs) It's just that that social component has like helped Facebook and Twitter or whatever the social form is to get really big, really fast. And so um, all of our, all of our solutions will have enduring long-term usability and usefulness, utility, even as uh, things become the next CompuServe or the next ICQ chat or whatever, you know, it might be that becomes a little more dated. You know, the Web3 and, D- and the DAO or DAO, whatever, however you want to pronounce it, I, I think it's still very nascent. Like the, the user community for that is very small. And I think people will be able to get things like digital co-op. Like that's a, that's a term people might be able to understand. But we're a ways away, yet, I think, from the from what's next. Although I, I think the idea of Web three is interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, it, it will definitely have its big crash in the next few months, and then uh, then when people start building like real stuff on it, hopefully right. after that, you know, we'll have its nineteen ninety nine, and then everything else gets built from ninety nine to two thousand five. Right? It's like that's what happened twenty years ago. Absolutely, I and mean, we're in that other cycle. I think uh, definitely. This kind of background you have in politics, I mean, I think it's this, when I talk to um, different CEOs and founders who are bringing to bear interesting kind of backgrounds that aren't maybe a typical move through a couple of different corporations and end up kind of founding something, often they will have some sort of uh, kind of insight that um, surprises them when they kind of start focusing on a startup, fast moving startup, trying to get to a certain level of scale. What I guess like most surprised you as you're trying to you know, build out a company relative to, I suppose, your uh, expectations going into it? I mean, I would say, I'm trying to think, you know, I think that I actually wrote a business plan for my company at the time that I started it because I was the first investor with my savings, right? And I wrote like a 65 page single spaced, like, narrative document on the business plan and all the risks we would have to address. And as I've looked back at that over time, a couple things that were really never accounted for was one kind of black swan events, right? And the second was, I think we probably overestimated the consumer demand, you know, earlier. And I think that you see this actually reflected through uh, the customer acquisition costs for rooftop solar, for example, being very high. Our product is an ingredient. It is not a solution entirely, right? We're a solution for a different problem. But for our customer, it's a solution for their identity, or maybe there's a cost savings component. But the product works the same, you know, generally before and after the customer makes the transaction. And so, um, you know, that's a different thing to try to figure out how to get people to adopt than something like carrying 5,000 songs in your pocket with an iPod. And and so, you know, I think I underestimated different times how much demand there was for the ingredient and and really having to spend time to understand the consumer better and what they were looking for, which is really just to find the easiest on-ramp possible. They already knew they wanted the ingredient. That makes absolute sense. Uh, Tom, this has been great. I really enjoyed the conversation. I suppose before we finish off, is there anything I should have asked you about but did not? No. A lot of fun. 
Brilliant. Thanks so much, Tom. This has been great. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I cannot express how appreciated it is. And we'll be back next week with another episode.